Lovely to see you, everybody. Welcome, welcome. And especially if you're new, uh, again, we, we love to kind of reiterate the welcomes because we really mean it. We love it when new people join with a kind of church where there are new people every week in this gathering. There'll be somebody in the, in the building who's here for the first time or second time, whatever. And um, we're really glad that you are. If you're checking us out, keep checking us out, is what I say. And I hope you've uh, bumped into some nice people. And, uh, and I hope you're staying warm as well. That's the other thing, isn't it? The heating's doing its best, and we have got solar panels, so that helps. Um, but it's, it's blooming cold, isn't it? So I, I nearly thought, shall I keep my scarf on, though? It's not stylish, and I want to be stylish tonight. So um, courageous resistance is this theme. I want to tell you the story of Cassie Burnell, which will be familiar to a few, and it might prompt, as I tell the story, you might remember th- this young woman who is an American young lady. Uh, in the late 90s, she, as growing up in a Christian home, parents loved uh, Jesus, but um, she kind of kicked over the tracks, really, in her early teenage years, went her own way, trod her own different path, ended up in some fairly grim and dark places, actually. Um, but she was, uh, towards the end of her teenage years, she was uh, brought out of where she was and set into a different school, which happened to be a school which was more overtly kind of Christian, and she was surrounded by those who, who, who kind of were, were card-carrying believers and followers of Jesus. And she had an experience on summer camp, um, and the school was called Columbine High School, which will begin, maybe trigger a few memories. Um, but she went on this camp, and she said, uh, of that summer, I was in a dark room, but then suddenly on this camp, the lights went on, she said. It was fairly dramatic kind of a thing. I was at this camp. A bunch of people were praying for me. I don't really know what happened, but I just felt changed. And the big burden that was on my heart and shoulders, it just lifted off. And then she said, she wrote um, to her friends shortly after this and said, isn't it amazing that we get to do this? Isn't it, isn't it amazing, the plan that we're part of? I mean, it's a pretty big thing to be part of God's plan. And honestly, she said, I want to live completely for God. It is hard, and it's quite scary, but it's totally worth it to me to live completely for God. Well, just a short while after that, April 20th, 1999, aged 17 years old in Columbine High School, you may remember the story or or, or reading about it, those of you who weren't around at that time, that a couple of ex-students came into the high school with guns. They started shooting people, uh, especially those who who they knew to be Christians, and eventually they ended up in the library where Cassie Burnell um, herself was. And there was one of her friends, actually, a guy called Joshua, who was hiding in the same room, so he was observing what was going on. And according to him, uh, what happened was they came over and they said to these two gunmen, they they, uh, said to Cassie, do you believe in God? And she paused for a second, but then she answered confidently, yes. And, And Joshua said he could see that she was obviously terrified, but sounded really strong in her voice. And she looked them in the eye and said, yes. And the gunman, the gunman who, who was there, who had uh, the gun to her head, said, why? But f- before she could even answer, he, he, he shot and killed her through the, through the, te- through the temple. And Cassie Bunnell's uh, story was written up by her parents subsequently based on her journals and diary and these events. And the story's called, She Said Yes. She Said Yes. It's an extremely inspiring read, if you're up for that kind of thing. Stories of courage don't get much more dramatic than that, do they? They don't really get much more uh, impactful or bigger than that. I think all virtues are really attractive. They just are. But there's something particularly powerful and attractive about courage, which is universally appealing. Anybody who doesn't like the idea of courage. And why is that? Because at some level, we all experience fear. We all experience fear, part of the human condition, which we don't like. And we all want to have courage to overcome fear. 
And so we're inspired by the people who do that. And the bigger the stakes, the bigger the consequences, the bigger the, 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 the fear, if you like, the bigger, the more courage is displayed, then the more extraordinary and the more, exp- the more inspiring that we, that we find it. So we read a book like that, that's, that, that's amazing. So here we are, we're in week three series, Courageous Resistance. I hope you've been tracking with us. If you've not been around for the last couple of weeks, uh, you've missed out, then please get online and, and watch the talks from those last two weeks. We're exploring then how the Holy Spirit is leading us to become that church that is more radical, that is more, we don't make no apology for that word, it just means rooted, uh, more passionate, more biblical, more kind of living up to what we see in our, in our Bibles that, the church, that God has called the church to be. That's all part of what we feel that we're being called to this year, and courage under this banner, courageous resistance, resisting in the sense of being on the front foot, that's really important, isn't it? Resisting in, in, in what we might call the freedom fighter kind of way, where they're fighting for freedom, but Jesus kind of freedom for people, kind of Jesus, freedom that he spoke about himself in Luke 4, he's quoting Isaiah, what's called the kingdom manifesto, where they're proclaiming good news to the poor, opening blind eyes, setting captives free free to be who God's made them to be. It's that kind of front foot sense of uh, taking ground from the enemy for God as part of the mission as, as who we are as the church. In many ways, it's why the church exists on earth. But also resistance in the sense of standing firm. Not necessarily doing the going and getting, but the standing firm in the face of everything that assaults us in a very hostile culture. Jesus said, if you're not for me, you're against me. This is a hostile culture that we're, that we're in that is uh, overwhelmingly anti the values of God, if you like. Uh, And how do we stand firm? How do we resist then in that kind of a culture being pulled away, lured away, drifting away, as I was talking a little bit about last Sunday morning, heli last Sunday evening here, get that tape. Only dead fish uh, go with the flow. We need to be alive in God, otherwise we just kind of drift. How do we stand firm against all of those things that are coming against us? So all of that is part of this courageous resistance. Yes, acknowledging the fear for sure but not giving into it. That takes so much courage to stand firm. So tonight's focus within this courageous resistance, resisting fear, resisting fear. Massive issue, we'll only scratch the surface tonight. So I've got this question for you. If you had a million pounds, what would you do? Actually, I haven't got that question. That's a rubbish question. That'll just get you fantasizing and daydreaming. I've got a much more interesting question, this one. If you had no fear, what would you do? If you had no fear, what would you do? Let me put it another way. Since everybody's got fear, the issue isn't about getting rid of fear, it's about dealing with it, overcoming it. So let me put it this way. It should be on the screen. If you had enough courage to overcome your fear, what would change in your life? If you had enough courage to overcome fear in your life, what, what, uh, overcome fear, what would change in your life? And I appreciate that's a deeply unfair question to ask you because it's far too big for you to ponder sensibly now. But I'll leave it there and ask it seriously. And you may be in touch with one or two things if you're uh, sort of really alert at the moment. But especially we're, we're thinking, of course, about how this relates to faith, our relationship with the Lord, if that's what you would claim to have. And you're so welcome if you haven't, if you would not claim yet to have a a relationship with the living Lord Jesus, then you're so welcome. We're glad that you're here. And I hope you've clocked that there's something called Alpha on beginning this Thursday, which is just the best place to continue exploring those kind of questions. But for those who would say, yeah, I've got some sort of faith, I might call myself a follower of Jesus, then how, how courage relates to that. 
I saw the YouTube tra trailer the other day, I'm sure some of you have seen it, uh, for the new Mission Impossible. It's just a trailer and it's, um, it's all a bit of a plot spoiler, but it's Tom Cruise basically on a motorbike jumping off an enormous mountainside. Uh, I mean, he literally does it because he does all his own stunts, uh, letting go of the bike and parachuting. And he does it loads of times to get it right, and it will be in the film, and it will be amazing. I'm not talking about that kind of courage. As amazing as that is, as courageous as that is, and those people who kind of sail around the world single-handed or running to burning buildings to rescue people, all, all of that is so inspiring. But I'm talking about faith, the, the kind of faith dimension of this. To resist fear as the people of God, not to let it control us, not to let it hold us back from going his way, living the big lives he's called us to. So another character we find so inspiring is Daniel. And, and we're, 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 we've plonked ourselves in Daniel for these three Sundays. Okay, he's the, he's the kind of ultimate Sunday school hero. And we all know, even if we didn't do Sunday school, which most of you didn't, you still kind of know something about, about Daniel. And he could even be this kind of cartoon figure, but he's not. He's, a, he's this real figure from real history who's very inspiring. A man who didn't let his fears, ultimately, control the decisions, who attended to his walk with the Lord. So that when the crunches came, he was able to, to bring courage to those decisions and faith to those decisions and make some incredible choices. So Daniel chapter 6, you might want to find it if you've got a device or a Bible, open it up, Daniel 6. We're not going to um, read through the, the, the whole of, of Daniel 6, but I'm going to refer to it, and it's always helpful to have it open. And again, I hope that you're in groups this week, that uh, if you're in the kind of group that may be following up on Sundays, that you, you may get to ponder this, I hope so. Such a story for our time, Daniel. Let's just remind ourselves a little bit. He, him and his mates, they're in Babylon because they've been taken captive by uh, the Babylonians, and they're wondering, uh, in, in the words of their fellows, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? That's, I think it's Psalm 137. Some of them said that. Translation for us, how can we, the people of God, be all out for Jesus when we are uh, just a small minority as they were uh, in a world which is not home for us? We're passing through on our way home to be with the Lord. An overwhelmingly anti-Christian culture in, in very obvious ways, but as well as very, very subtle ways too. But where we want to make a difference and we want to be faithful like Daniel. And so these first chapters are all about how they did that, and they did that incredibly well. Here's Daniel in chapter 1. Remember, he refuses to compromise uh, and not eat the king's food with his mates. And he does it graciously, but he still just trusts the Lord. This is my, my line in the sand. I'm not going to do that. God takes care of him. He even promotes him. He comes into this senior position. And by the time we get to chapter 6, he's got another promotion looming. He's already pretty high up in the government. He's got this other promotion looming. And uh, his rivals, of course, are not that pleased about that. Uh, these sort of other officials on, of his rank, they're pretty naffed off. They're naffed off not because he's bad, of course, but actually because he's good. He's very good, which is an interesting combination, isn't it? Uh, of, and I think it can be true for, for, for those uh, in, uh, with faith in Jesus who are walking with... It can be deeply attractive. We're supposed to be attractive and attract people to Jesus. That can be deeply attractive but threatening at the same time. I suspect that's what's happening here. They were threatened enough to make a plan. So here we are, verse 4. They want to uh, have a go at Daniel. But they could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and he wasn't corrupt or negligent. Brackets, by the way, here's Daniel in a, in a secular workplace. He's not a church leader. He's just doing a secular government, civil service type of a job. It just means that they recognize he does this excellently. Part of the way he expressed his faith in God 
His, his worship of God was to work really well. It was to work hard. It was to be of good character. It was to, to do well. It applies to all of us in the room. So verse 5, the men finally say, well, we're not going to find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it's got something to do with the law of his God. That's the only thing we're going to be able to pin on him because he's different. We know that he's loyal to this other God, so we're going to try and use that to get at him. Again, just pause there. I don't think we get very much of that yet in England. get some of it, and it's certainly been rising in my lifetime and over the last a few years for sure, and is rising sharply and is becoming a thing, this idea of how can we bring that person down just because they happen to believe in Jesus. In fact, a month ago, um, the brother of a friend of ours was a spy teacher in the classroom, was teaching, came towards the end of the classroom that he wasn't teaching in this moment, but there was a student who said, sir, knowing him to be a Christian, do you, uh, could you tell us what your, what your personal view is about sexuality? And so he was being asked his personal view. He wasn't teaching it. He was just asked the question. So he answered it. He said, yeah, as a, as a, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, I, ha- I happen to base my authority on, uh, on the Bible, as Jesus did. And he gave an orthodox kind of mainline Christian answer that he believed that marriage was, the Bible teaches that marriage is between one woman and one man for life, and that the context for sexual relationships is within marriage. He said some other things. That's essentially what he, what he said, the kind of view that's been held for 2,000 years all around the world in, in the mainstream church. The students were recording him. They gave the recording to the school authorities, uh, whereupon our friend's brother was sacked immediately and told not to come back to that school for giving a, a, a private, personal opinion for which he had been asked. Daniel chapter 6, the Babylonians' official, uh, the officials here, they're, they're kind of equivalent trickery then, knowing what Daniel believed, that he was full of integrity, full of consistency in, in the way that he believed it, was to go to the king, to play on the king's pride, and to introduce this, get him to introduce this new law. So verse 7, the law says that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except you, your majesty... Uh, the, uh, this is uh, King Darius, will be thrown into the lion's den. And the king agrees rather too hastily because he regrets it later. But once he's, he's given his word, then the word can't be changed. So Daniel, of course, hears about the new law, and we get to the best verse in the chapter. Here it is, verse 10. Now, when Daniel learned that this decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. And three times a day, he got down on his knees. He prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. And then these men went as a group, they found Daniel praying and they asked God, uh, Daniel praying and asking God for help. So of course here they are, the officials, just like the students in the classroom, hey, we've got him, you know, the plans work, we've got the video evidence, we've got, we've got it all on tape and now we can just take it to the headmaster and essentially the headmaster can do nothing but abide by his own rules. The king in this case has got to abide by his own rules and, the, and gets Daniel thrown into the lion's den. Incredibly familiar. Verse 18 When that's happened, the king goes back to the palace full of regret, spent the night without eating, without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. Probably not surprisingly. Well, we we who know the story a little bit about it, I, I, I suspect that Daniel slept just fine. I don't know, we can't, doesn't, text doesn't tell us, but I like to imagine that he slept well. Uh, because he, 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 we know that he's just grown a great trust in the Lord. Next verse, 19, at the first light of dawn, the king got up, hurried to the lion's den. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually? Why has he put that in? I mean, just, just let's notice it's there, this consistency of Daniel's walk with the Lord. 
Uh, has he been able to rescue you from the lions? And Daniel said, may the king live forever, which is a very kind greeting, it seems to me, given the circumstances. My God sent it, my God, my God, so personal, sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They haven't hurt me, because I was found innocent in, in his sight, and nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. And the king is delighted, and he takes Daniel out of the, the lion's den, you might remember, and there's no wounds on him, and the text says, because he trusted in his God, he throws the baddies into the lion's den. And, and the king, through this encounter, let's not, let's not miss this, the king, through the encounter, the miraculous encounter of the power of God in the life of a human being who just trusted that God, has this extraordinary effect on the king. And he does this whole 180, and uh, we, we read at the end, he scraps the old law, he introduces the new one, and the new one, verse 26, towards the end of the chapter says, in every part of my kingdom now, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, and he endures forever, and his kingdom won't be destroyed, and his dominion will never end. Just a brilliant, brilliant and inspiring story. Last week, I suggested that uh, I was talking a little bit about compromise. It's a bit linked under courageous resistance, not compromising. I was suggesting that compromise happens in, in the bad sense of compromise, when, like kind of drifting with the flow of culture, when uh, our desire for comfort outweighs our conviction. I don't know if we got that slide. Somebody who's, whoever's on the, the keynote there. Whoever, uh, the compromise is, is when our comfort, desire for comfort, is bigger than uh, our conviction of something. So it's, we just take the path of least resistance. We take the easy way out, whatever. So like when everybody else is doing whatever it is, X, Y, Z, whatever, everybody's gossiping, everybody's lying, everybody in this environment is doing this. If I don't fit in, then you know, it's, it's going to look weird. That's going to be uncomfortable. Actually, in this moment, it's quite appealing to do that. It's quite appealing to join in the online kind of pile on against somebody and add my voice of criticism. It's kind of, kind of gives me a bit of a short-term buzz. So my, my desire for ease, comfort, pleasure in that short-term way overcomes it outweighs my conviction that it's the wrong thing to do, and so I end up compromising and going with the flow. That was my last week, my kind of part two for this week. Courage, again, these are big shorthand concepts, I get it. But courage is, is what happens when our conviction outweighs our fear. When the level of what I'm absolutely convinced about, all those things, belief, values, principles, etc., outweighs the fear that I'm feeling that wants me to, to run away or do the other thing. And Daniel here was resisting fear, for sure. I mean, don't tell me, the text doesn't say it, but don't you tell me that as a human being, he wasn't fearful, he wasn't afraid. And he sure was when they rolled back the, or you know, unlocked the gate and he began to whiff the lions and you know, hear them and see the bones on the floor and he's held by the scruff of the neck and he's thrown into the thing. Don't tell me that he wasn't afraid, however much he might be trusting. But he will not dishonor God. He will be obedient to what he believes to be right. He does the right thing, not the easy thing. Again, family mantra, one of our family mantras growing up with the kids, do the right thing, not the easy thing. So his convictions, his Daniel's convictions, they outweigh his fear by so far. His convictions outweigh his fear, and he exhibits courage, enormous courage. On this stage a few years ago, I had the privilege of interviewing a guy called Canon Andrew White. 
Some of you may know that name. He was so-called the vicar of Baghdad, so he's a, he's a pastor, he ran a church, about 1,500 people in the church in the middle of Baghdad, and during and through some of the, the horrific Iraq war years, just ministering to those people in, in a shell-shocked, terrible kind of environment, incredible dangers, but he was just convicted, had this conviction about the power of God and his calling, and he did amazing things, and he stepped into all kinds of dangerous things. I remember him saying that he, he went once, he got involved in hostage, uh, negotiating for, for those who'd been taken hostage, kidnapped. And he found himself in one room once to try and negotiate for some uh, hostages. And it, it went slightly wrong, and he found himself locked up. And in that room, there were quite a lot of freshly severed um, fingers and toes all over the floor. And he went back again the next day. I thought, well, gosh, courage under fire. Because his conviction outweighed his fear. On this stage, about three or four, maybe a bit more, five, six years ago, do you remember the North Korea, those who were around the North Korean lady, Hei Wu, an elderly lady, who had been imprisoned in North Korea for many, many years, simply because she didn't uh, recount the name of Jesus. She, she, she believed in Jesus. And she started a church in that prison for women, in the women's toilets. And... Um, you know, they would, they would whisper, sing amazing grace to each other. And as they passed each other in the corridor, they had some secret signs and things. Extraordinary courage, but facing enormous fear that neither of those people would claim not to have had fears. We love the stories, don't we? I love those kind of stories. But if you're anything like me, you go, yeah, but, Tim, I'm not like that. I'm just, you know, those are those kind of stories. And I'm, you know, here, they've got those kind of gifts and those kind of personalities and, and that kind of level of faith and, you know, good on them and it's inspiring, but I ain't no Daniel or Vicar of Baghdad or whatever. Sure, I, I get that. Me not. Me neither. Absolutely not. But... To all of us, uh, Jesus says, don't fear, 365 times, remember, one for each day of the year in the Bible. Not because we can uh, rid us to sort of flick a switch and get rid of fear, or because it's a terrible thing, we shouldn't feel it ever. It's part of the human condition, but precisely because Jesus gets us. He really gets us. He understands us. He has such compassion for us in our fears, whatever your level of fear. Huge empathy and understanding and compassion. He doesn't judge us for it, but he wants to be alongside us in it. And all the resources that were actually available to Jesus, that were available to Daniel, that were available to Canon Andrew White and Hey Wu, are available to us who have received the Holy Spirit of God by, by believing on Jesus. All the resources to bring against this are ours, the same things to step out in obedience to his word and to his leading. So fear of death is the biggest fear. It's the kind of top of the, it's the big one, isn't it? The fear of Daniel in the lion's den stuff. If the fear of death is the top of the list, and he's got what it takes under God to, to handle that fear, to bring courage and conviction that outweighs that fear to that situation, all the other fears down to yours and mine are dealt with, aren't they? They're all not dealt with, they're all covered. I find that so encouraging. So let's bring it into our territory, where the fear of following Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus here, carries a risk and we need some courage. 
And of course, there's a, there's a, there's a million of these. Let me, let me just kind of burble a bit and hook on to where your fear latches on. So, so often we call this the fear of man, fear of people, if you like, the fear of what other people will think or do or say or whatever if we stick out. Anything that we, we do or say, any, any part of the way that we live which sticks out like a sore thumb because of our faith in Jesus is going to invite the potential for somebody to think differently about us. And we don't like that. That induces fear, or it does in most people depending on what the, the kind of situation is. I'm going to be weird, they, they'll think I'm weird, that I'm going to lose my friends, they're going to reject me, I'm going to be on my own, da-da-da, all of those kinds of things. If I follow Jesus in that area or that area or that area, I'm just going to dumb it down a bit so I, so I sort of fit in. It takes courage to admit to yourself first, by the way, as well as then to, to others, it takes courage to admit that you've got a problem with, for example, self-hatred. It takes courage. It takes courage to admit that you've got a problem with gossip or with alcohol or with drugs or with lying or that your marriage is not in a very healthy way. It takes courage to admit that you've got a problem with jealousy, you struggle with it, or with phone addiction, with scrolling and swiping and surfing. It takes courage to admit you've got an issue with pornography. Well, that little list right there is going to cover pretty much everybody in the room, for sure. Far easier to keep it hidden or to kind of blend in with the crowd, except that it never goes away, does it? And the enemy just kind of keeps it there and keeps you under his thumb because there's this thing. It takes courage to get, for some people to get up in the morning when you're facing a day which is, carries anxiety or you're, you're anxious about what the day might contain. It takes courage. It takes courage, huge courage, often to forgive, especially the... When the scale of hurt is, is big, it takes courage to persevere in doing good when nobody's watching. How about money? It takes courage, as a friend of mine did, to turn down a better paid role. It takes courage to turn down a promotion. It takes courage to step into something which is far less well remunerated just because you feel that that's where the Lord is leading you. Somebody said ages ago, faith is spelt risk, R-I-S-K. It takes courage. Risk involves courage, involves trusting, involves, it involves believing that, that God will do what he said he'll do and he will provide for you. But it takes faith to believe that. There's some risk involved. There's some conviction and fear equation going on. And lovely stories from here over the years of people who have dared in the, in the area of, of, in the area of money, of, of giving. It takes some courage to step into the generous giving that the Bible teaches about. Even that thing called tithing, 10% of gross income to, to begin giving that kind of level away, that can take some, some courage. Beautiful testimonies, testimonies of those who've done it and don't regret it, and nobody ever re regrets generous giving. I've never met anybody who regrets that. But it takes some courage to get going into it. It'll take some courage to pay the cost of following Jesus wherever he leads sometimes. Now, I don't know where we get this, this distorted... Um, quarter gospel, half gospel, if you like, that says God loves you, which he does. You can have a great life, and he's here to meet all of your needs without you needing to change at all or really pay a price. And if there is some suffering involved somewhere down the line, then something must have gone wrong. That's a weird gospel, isn't it? I hope we don't believe that. That gospel comes from hell, actually. <laughs> Let's put it that strongly. It's so distorted. Have we read our Bibles? 
There's no better news on earth. There just isn't. There is no better news on earth than Jesus saving us, than Jesus forgiving us, bringing us into uh, the, the, the family with the Father where we know his love, receive his identity, new hope, new purpose, and all that flows from that. But the idea that all that happens without cost, that there isn't a price to pay, well, we need to read our Bibles. Jesus says, take up your cross daily. People who take up, took up their cross were the people who were going to their own death. In fact, there was a, a guy called Bonhoeffer. He said, when, when Christ calls a man or a woman, he bids them come and die. So sure, there's joy and peace and uh, you know, unbelievable blessing involved, but the, there's cost in this, and so it takes courage. That's a big list. I've given us a big list, you know, I, but you'll, you'll find yourselves in there somewhere. Putting others first even, just saying no to the things that your flesh would love to say yes to, forgiving people, playing the, not playing the victim card, all of those things takes courage. So anyway, here we are. Daniel, he overcame his fear of death. He overcame his fear of man, I would say. His fear of the consequences of what would happen if he just continued to follow the Lord faithfully. Why? Because he had cultivated a conviction, levels of conviction that outweighed his fear. That's what he had done. He'd cultivated, if you like, the one healthy fear that really matters, what the Bible calls the fear of God. It's a funny phrase. We haven't got time for it now. But, but the fear of God, honoring God, respecting God, God being who he is. In fact, the very name Daniel, discover this. The very name Daniel means God is my judge. The Dan means judge. The E means my. And the L is God. God is my judge. God is my judge. Human beings are not. The emperor is not. The king is not. I'm answerable ultimately to the one authority, and that's God. It's even in his name. Don't you love that? He's Daniel, and that is the one to whom he's going to pay the ultimate allegiance. And when there's a conflict between what the king says and what God says, God is always going to win. And he lived that way for a very long time. Do you know how old he was when he uh, was taken by the scruff of the neck and chucked into that smelly pit with the lions? I've always pictured, I learned something, I've always pictured that it was quite, chapter 6 comes quite soon after chapter 1. In chapter 1, he's about 17 or 18, so he's probably not that old. Turns out about three or four kings later, duh, work it out to him, that he's between 80 and 90 years old at this point. Is that, is that what you thought when you, you see Daniel in the lion's den? 80 or 90. He's had this lifetime of faithful service. Let's go back to one verse, and I'll, I'll just explore this for a short while, and then we'll finish. I want, I want you to look at verse 10 again, just to see something of the how here, of how Daniel grows this, has grown this level of conviction that outweighs his fear that results in him being courageous. And there will be other things, plenty of other things that will be, could be said about Daniel, but this is one of the keys to his life right here. Verse 10, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. And three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. And then these men went as a group. They found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So as I said last week, at slightly longer length in the morning, he was simply a man of the presence of God. He was a man always after the presence of his God. From the moment that we meet him in, in, in chapter 1, to the moment that he leaves us at the end of the story. And he's one of the few who finishes well, by the way, of the Bible heroes. 
He's always seeking the presence of God in prayer. He's looking to spend time with the Lord, the real king, share his, his life with him, share his everything with him, share his challenges and his joys and his sorrows and his fears and, and just the stuff of life. In a few different ways, look at that verse. Unashamedly, why? Because the window's open. He doesn't really mind who sees him at this point. He's not afraid of being seen. He's not, he's not a closet Christian, if you like, in our language. He's not one who's going to hide and, oh, I, I, it's Monday morning. What, what did you do at the weekend? Well, I went to that funny thing, you know, Trinity. I, I go to this church. Or, or just being known for your faith, just being known as a Jesus follower, wherever you are, whatever that costs you, however graciously you do that. He's just unashamed about all of that because the window's open. He doesn't really mind who, who sees. It's quite public. And by the way, it's facing um, Jerusalem. He wants this reminder. The windows, Jerusalem's thousands of miles that way, but he wants this reminder that it's all about that place where the presence of God is. Okay, so yes, God is with him, but in those days, of course, God located the, the, the kind of sense of God's presence was, was in the temple in Jerusalem. Not Babylon, this alien foreign culture where he is. He wants to orientate himself and make sure that his gaze is always there. His gaze is on the presence of God. He's after encounter with the living God. Unashamedly, regularly, morning, noon, and night, three times it says in the verse. Part of his rhythm, I don't believe it's just those three occasions. It's just those are, those are some of the scaffolding on which he's building his life of doing life with God. So this regularity, rule of life stuff, we say so much about that. Humbly, he's on his knees. Beautiful posture of surrender. Why? Because he's just recognizing that God is God and he's not. Praise the Lord. Knees is a posture of that. Thankfully, it says in the verse, he's thankful. Here he is. He's just learned that he's going to be killed or thrown to the lions. He's, he's stayed thankful. What a fantastic quality. Whatever the circumstances of life, there's always things that we can be thankful for because the origin of every good thing is God. Daniel had that habit. It was the, it's the heart of worship, by the way, as we worship. The heart of worship is an expression of thanks for all God has done and who he is. Continually, it says, just as he had done before. In other words, for 80 years, he'd been doing this. Established, rock-solid habits, character that is intertwined with the life of his God whom he serves. And then just very simply, it says in the verse, asking for help, just like a kid does. It's not complicated. Most of the Lord's prayer is asking for stuff. He's just learned to ask for stuff like you do. Because God says, ask me stuff. I'll be delighted to help. And then to trust the outcomes to God. It's the whole thing, isn't it? I don't know if, um, if Daniel would have known about the, the prophecies of Isaiah. He probably would. He's a couple of hundred years later, if, if my history is about right. And he might have known Isaiah 41, verse 10, which says, don't be afraid. It's one of the many. First verse my dad taught me. Don't be afraid, for I am with you. Not just up in the sky somewhere. Friends, if you don't know a single promise from the Bible yet, you could start there. You could do worse, couldn't you? Do not fear, because I'm with you. I wonder if that was the promise he took with him as he walked towards the lion's den. Don't be dismayed, for I'm your God. I'll strengthen you. I'll help you. I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. Or whatever promise. And he stood, he's a man who cultivated, stood on the promises of God, the word of God, always encountering the presence of God. And his convictions came over a lifetime of doing life with the Lord. He didn't have, he, he, milkshake or grapefruit, if you can have that picture up. He, he wasn't one who had his prayer life here and his work life here. And um, have we got that picture? Lovely. There it is. Grapefruit. He, you know, the segmented kind of life, my gym life, my friendship life, my thing life, oh, my Trinity life over here, my life we've got. He, we're not grapefruits. 
were milkshakes. It was all bound up together. The life of God, the encounters with God, the presence of God permeated all of him and all of the bits of life that he did. Last um, uh, inspiring, courageous resistor. Brother Andrew started a thing called Open Doors. I think Anna's around somewhere, Anna McLean. She works for Open Doors in Whitney. Brother Andrew started that as a wonderful organization that, that helps to support those in the persecuted church. And he died last year, Brother Andrew. is a remarkable Dutch uh, old saint. And he, re, get his book, it's called God Smuggler. He, used to sm he had his VW Beetle and he would load it up with, with Bibles in hidden compartments and stuff. And regularly would be the time where he'd be approaching a checkpoint in a communist country. And the car in front of him would be torn to pieces and the tires would be taken off and they'd be looking everywhere. And he would just sit there calmly trusting. Fearful, yes. But his convictions outweighing his fear, so he's displaying courage. And he would pray this prayer. Lord, in my luggage, I've got scripture that I want to take to your children. When you were on earth, you made blind eyes see. Well, now I pray that you'd make seeing eyes blind. Don't let the guards see the things that you don't want them to see. And he'd often he'd just you know, sail through and live to tell the tale. And he said this, our mission Open Doors is called Open Doors because we believe that every door is open to go in and proclaim Christ as long as you're willing to go and you're not worried about coming back. Conviction outweighing fear. And his story, his story is absolutely extraordinary, but he actually kept it very, very simple. And I'll end on this quotation. He said, the real, I think it's on the screen, the real calling, he said, is not to a certain place or a certain career, but to everyday obedience. And that call is for every follower of Jesus, not just a select few. The Bible is full of ordinary people who went to impossible places. They did wondrous things simply because they decided again and again and again to follow Jesus, to give their yes to Jesus. In the words of Cassie Burnell, back to her courageous resistor, conviction overcoming fear and therefore displaying extraordinary courage, she just said yes. Yes.